Almighty Father, as we come to your word, um, there's all kinds of um, potential complexities and uh, things that are uh, easy uh, to miss or difficult to grasp. And every one of us here uh, is, uh, by virtue of our experience of whatever is happening in our life, there's just a lot of things that can distract us. But we ask that you would, um, by your Holy Spirit, work within us now. Uh, grant us to understand precisely what it is that is true, exactly what it is that your word is teaching us. Grant us to get a clear grasp of Jesus. Um, and we ask that, that we would be able to see uh, just how wonderful he is, just how beautiful he is, just how he is uh, ultimately worthy of our trust, uh, and that you would give us the capacity to trust him. Address our questions. Address our, address our concerns. They're not too big for you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, uh, as you sit down, would you please turn back to page 10, which is the reading from Colossians. Colossians is a, is a, is a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago by a, somebody called the Apostle Paul to a young church in a city called Colossae. And it, this letter is designed to help this young church grasp what it means to really follow Jesus authentically. And so we've been reading through it and, uh, and allowing it to, um, to, to, uh, to teach us some things. Um, today, we need to ask a question uh, that every church needs to ask on a regular basis and that every Christian needs to ask. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're just trying to figure things out, um, this is still a question that you need to ask because it helps uh, uh, clarify the, the heart of true Christianity. Here's the question. Why do you do the religious things that you do? What I mean is, what is the aim uh, in your religious life, in your spiritual life, whatever it might be, what is it that you're aiming at as you do the religious things that you do? What is it that motivates you? Why do you do the religious things that you do? That you do? And here's why it's a crucial question. Um, like I just said, we are continuing in our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're trying this autumn to ask and clarify ourselves on the question, what is Jesus's vision for a church um, because whatever else that we're going to do, we, we want to make sure we're living out that vision as, as best we can. Paul's letter to the Colossians helps us do that because he wrote it to coach a young church in answering that question. And in our passage today, um, Paul brings up a theme that is just massive throughout the whole Bible. And here's part of the theme. Following Jesus is not only a matter of what you do, it is also, very importantly, a matter of why it is that you do it. Why do you do the religious things that you do? It matters. In fact, according to Jesus, you saw this in the, in the gospel reading, which we're not going to go into, but we see it in, the, in our epistle reading. According to Jesus, you can be the most religiously observant person around and nevertheless still find yourself utterly cut off from God. You know, people find this um, surprising sometimes, but, you know, the Bible does not necessarily think that religion, as religion, is necessarily always a good thing. In fact, the Bible is, I don't know of a more searing critique of religion than the Bible is. 
Don't imagine that it's naive about the toxic potential of religion. It's not. It's crushingly critical of certain types and approaches to religion. And in our passage, Paul teaches us that the religion that Jesus wants for us is a religion that is absolutely captivated by Jesus, where nothing is allowed to eclipse the priority of Jesus. And, and what I want to point out, what I want us to see is three things. First of all, we need to consider how is it that the Bible critiques a certain type of religion? Secondly, what's the Bible's solution? What's Paul's solution in our passage for the problem of religion? And then thirdly, what are the signs of a church is authentically living out the, the following of Jesus? Okay, so first of all, um, how does the Bible critique religion? And in order to do this, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing the last several weeks. What we're going to do is we're going to back up, we're going to look at the Old Testament and fill in a backstory, and that'll help us as we come back to Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians to, to clarify things. Um, think about uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, ancient Israel. You might imagine that the Old Testament is really glowing in its review of ancient Israel's religion. However, if you actually read it, you'll find that that's not the case at all. The Old Testament is actually scathing in its critique of the very nation that gave birth to these writings, uh, which is one of the reasons that it, it, it kind of argues for trusting it. Um, the, the Old Testament is not simple propaganda. It's too honest for that. It's too self-critical to be propaganda. Let me give you an example. Um, the little-known story of uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Um, here's, here's, here's the story. So this is towards the end of the, bio, the Old Testament. And um, so a lot happened before this. we get to this story I'm about ready to tell. Um, uh, toward the beginning of the Old Testament, God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then God gives Israel uh, his law, which was meant to teach Israel how to love God and how to love one another. However, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds over centuries, it becomes very clear that Israel's terrible at both of those things. They're just terrible at loving God well, and they're broadly terrible at loving one another well. And what that leads to is eventually the whole national life collapses and Israel finds itself enslaved again. Not enslaved to Egypt, but enslaved in Babylon, or at least in exile in Babylon. Now, that's when, uh, just a little bit after that, Zechariah gets a vision. He's a prophet. And in this vision that he describes, what he sees is he sees the Israelite high priest, a guy called uh, Joshua. And Joshua, in this vision, is standing in front of God's throne. And it appears that it's a trial. The high priest, Joshua, is on trial in front of God. And there's Joshua, the high priest, in all of his high priestly garb and regalia. You can imagine if you, if you think of a bishop or if you think of the pope or something like that, in all the regalia, they're standing before the throne of God. But there's a problem. And the problem is that his robes are filthy. They're just filthy. However, and this is a little awkward coming from a pulpit, they are not filthy with dirt. 
that's what the, the, our English uh, translates as, as filthy, but it's not dirt, it's, um, it, it's, 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 it's excrement. I'm trying to find a word that's appropriate. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's gross, it's smelly. He's full of crap, you know, or at least surrounded by it. And, and it appears that in this scene, that's what God thinks of his own people's religious performance to that point. Now, why? Well, there are three reasons, and this is kind of a review of the last few weeks. But there was an outward problem, there was an inward problem, and then there was an underlying problem. The outward problem is that uh, Israel had did terrible, terrible things, had perpetrated terrible, terrible things over the course of hundreds of years, and therefore they had this record of guilt that stood against them. And that was part of the yuck that was on Joshua's robes. That was an outward problem, a, a record of guilt. Right now, everybody knows that you can uh, be really, really popular in society, and then when your record of guilt comes Clear, it destroys everything. Israel had a record of guilt. But they also had an inward problem. The inward problem is that they just didn't love, excuse me, um, okay. The, um, the, outward, the inward problem is that they just didn't love God well. Um, they didn't love God. They habitually didn't love God and didn't love one another. And so even when they did conform uh, to the outward ritual and, and so forth, it, it ended up being regularly, not always, but regularly hypocritical. And no one likes a religious hypocrite. So they had an outward problem, an inward problem, but then thirdly, they had an underlying problem. And the underlying problem um, is... It's shown in this vision. So you've got Joshua standing before God in these filthy, disgusting robes. But not only do the robes smell, standing beside him is Satan. It's one of the few times Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament. The word Satan means accuser. And it appears that in this situation, Satan is the chief prosecutor, prosecuting a trial against Joshua the high priest, and Joshua represents the whole of the nation. And so here's Joshua standing before the throne of God under judgment with Satan standing next to him. His robes are filthy, which is indisputable evidence of his guilt. And Satan's crying guilty. It, which is to say, it was an image of saying that, that the nation, as religious as they were, they were under the grip of Satan. Now, all that's background, but bring that to the Colossian church. Now, here's the situation going on in Colossae. The, the church at Colossae was largely Gentile. They didn't primarily have a Jewish background. And yet, nevertheless, it appears that there are some teachers that had come in, and what they were saying is, you need to add a little bit of Jewish ritual, and you need to add um, probably a little bit of pagan ritual as well. But the idea is that if you add a little bit of this ritual and these disciplines, it'll kind of up your game before God. And the danger was that the church at Colossae was going to begin to rely increasingly upon their performance of some of these rituals and so forth. And Paul comes at, at them in this passage and he says, stop. It's literally satanic. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. 
Or skip down to verse 20. Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, meaning they won't address the inward problem, nor the outward problem, nor the underlying problem. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Colossians, friends, what are you thinking? Understand, it's as if Paul says, it's not that the Old Testament regulations are bad. They're not. They're good. But if you think that they will up your game before God, then you have missed the whole point of the Old Testament, says Paul. It's as if he looks at them and he says, Colossians, take it from me. I'm a recovering Pharisee. I'm a religious ninja. And it got me no further than it got Joshua. Standing before God, with slime on my robes, and Satan crying out, guilty. All right, so that's the problem with mere performance-based, ritualized religion. It just doesn't work. In fact, it ends up uh, deepening the slavery. Now, that's the problem. What's Paul's solution? And we might, I don't know about you, but we, we might be tempted to, see, to say something like, yes, I know, you know what? Religion doesn't work. Religion, have, have you read Christopher Hitchens? Everybody knows religion doesn't work. He would say religion poisons everything, right? It's a searing critique. And, and, and if you're somebody like Christopher Hitchens, what you'll say is that the solution, obviously, is just that one didn't work, so just don't be religious. The problem is that the Bible would say that that's too simplistic as well. Because all of us could check our news feeds, don't. But all of us could check our news feeds and, and find all kinds of religious, non-religious people who nevertheless have an outward problem of a record of guilt, an inward problem of a failure to love, and therefore they stand, even our own society looks at them and says, guilty. We've all, we've all got the same problem. So if the solution is not irreligion, what is the solution? Well, Paul says, predictably, the answer is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think with me for a second. This is kind of fun. Um, Jesus, Jesus, did you know this? Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. Jesus is the new high priest. Jesus is the new Joshua. And when Jesus died upon the cross what he was doing, even though he had no personal perpetration of guilt, he was putting upon himself uh, Joshua's soiled robes and all of the record of guilt of Israel. And when he died, he experienced the penalty that Satan was prosecuting against Joshua the high priest and all of Israel. That was the outward problem. It died with Jesus the record of guilt. And then, when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, he rose with the ability to impart his own spirit to those who trust in him. Another way to put that is, he imparts his own love to his followers so that if you trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus loves, so to speak, through your own soul so that he addresses the inward problem, the inability to love well. But once he deals with the outward problem and he deals with the inward problem, he therefore destroys the underlying problem. He destroys our captivity to Satan. And that's what verse 15 is about. Look at it. 
Jesus, through the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's a reference to satanic and demonic evil, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. And here's the point, friends. Jesus achieves for us what mere religious observance always fails to deliver. Only the cross can resolve the outward problem, the inward problem, and the underlying problem. And, it, and it's fleshed out in the Old Testament. Go back to Zechariah's vision, because it ends up that Zechariah's vision was not just an indictment against Israel's uh, false performance and faulty performance, but it was also a prediction and a prophecy about the Messiah's victory. Let me read it to you. Just listen. Enjoy. Story. It says this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord Yahweh said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man Joshua a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua, Joshua was dressed in filthy garments as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off those filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich vestments upon you. And they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the Lord Almighty says, I will remove the sin of this land in one single day. Which we understand to be Good Friday. Now here's what you need to see. The Bible's claim, audacious claim, bold, is that religious performance, even the best possible kind of it, won't by itself change us. Not really. You can follow all the rules, but it won't clear your record. You can uh, do all the disciplines, but it won't change your heart. Not by itself. Religious performance can't set you free. And in fact, if we trust ourselves to it, it will over time deepen our slavery. This is why the Bible is so critical of religious performance as a basis of our trust. But on the other hand, what religious performance as the basis of our trust is cannot do, Jesus accomplishes in the cross. And that changes everything. How does it change everything? Does it really change everything, Jim? Yeah, it does. In, the, in this way. I'm, I knew you were asking. I was imagining you were asking me a question. If Jesus has accomplished everything so that our filthy robes can re be replaced with his pure vestments, then what that means is that the animating center of our religion must be trust in Jesus and not ourselves. Faith in Jesus is everything. Paul uses the image of a body. My body is moving, my hand is moving in part because it's attached to my head. Sever my body from my head and it will die. Doesn't mean my body is a problem, but it means it's meant to work together the same way in Christianity. We trust in Christ, and that animates everything because he's our head. Now, I'm imagining somebody coming back at me. Jim, just play along. <laughs> Jim, does that mean that obedience doesn't matter for Christians? Does that mean that the spiritual disciplines don't matter? Of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. Please don't think it does. 
Keep reading in Colossians. We'll get there. But it matters in this way. Um, the Old Testament ritual, verse 17, is a shadow that was meant to get us ready for the reality and the substance, which is Christ. And the same is true of all true Christian ritual and discipline. All true Christian ritual and discipline is meant to, meant to show us we need Jesus and to increase our trust in Jesus that he's accomplished everything necessary for us and to bind us together to him. Or let me put it this way. The central test of true religion is in verse 19, and I'll put it as a question. Does our religion drive us to verse 19, hold fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God? So that's why I asked the question. Why do you do the religious things that you do? How you answer that question will determine almost everything about your walk with Christ. Let me tell a story. This is a parable. It's about a guy called Robert. If your name's Robert, whatever. I was just pulling it out of thin air. Um, I, I want you to imagine that Robert is a foodie, loves food, loves food, probably lives in Brooklyn. I don't know, because that's where they all live. Um, and some of you are thinking, that's true, actually. Um, and, uh, and so uh, Robert, he, he learns to cook, and he becomes a chef. He becomes a chef um, of a very small, one-off place. And, um, and he, writes, he writes a book about food, and, and, and everybody loves Robert's food and loves what he says about food and everything. But then one day, one day, Robert gets rushed to the hospital, um, and it ends up that uh, Robert is malnourished. And apparently, what happened is Robert was in love with cooking, but in all of that, he, he wasn't actually adequately receiving the food himself. So that he was surrounded by food which he made and performed, but he wasn't himself receiving it. Now, that's a parable about the religious life of many, many people in Christian churches. There are many, many people in Christian churches who are surrounded by religion, who are cooking up religion all the time, but are not feeding upon Christ himself. They're trusting to their performance, but not trusting to Christ. They are not feasting on Christ by faith. And they're malnourished. And it's dangerous. So let me ask you a question. Is your Christianity a feeding on Christ by faith? Or is it just cooking up religion? What does it look like to feed on Christ? Let me end with just two characteristics of truly feeding on Christ. Two characteristics. One, you are feeding in Christ. One of the signs that you're feeding on Christ is that you will bring him and entrust to him your brokenness. And secondly, it'll be marked by a warm-hearted attachment to Christ. First of all, it'll be marked by uh, bringing Jesus our brokenness rather than our best performance. So what I guess what I'm asking is, what do you bring to Jesus? What do you bring to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, check it out. Here it is. Is it your best performance? 
I might ask the question, what do you bring to your brothers and sisters in church? Is it your best performance or is it your brokenness? Do you bring before Christ, this is my very worst Christ and I entrust it to you? You only will do that if you really think that Jesus and not your performance is the determinative factor. And I got to tell you, um, Emmanuel, we are full here. Look around. We're full of very competent people. You look great. And I think that might be our danger. Be careful. What do you bring to Jesus? Your best performance or your brokenness? Secondly, when you bring him your brokenness and you see his grace, it, it affects a warm-hearted attachment to Christ, which is the beginning of loving him. Let me read, I'll, I'll end just by reading this. Um, this is from the memoirs of uh, one of the early uh, presidents of Princeton. But it illustrates that warm-hearted connection to Christ. It says this, It has often appeared to me delightful to be united to Christ, to have him for my head, and to be a member of his body, and also to have Christ for my teacher and my prophet. I very often think with sweetness and longings and pantings of soul of being a little child and taking hold of Christ and being led by him through the wilderness of this world. I love to think of coming to Christ to receive salvation from him, poor in spirit and quite empty of self, humbly exalting him alone, cut off entirely from my own root in order to grow into and out of Christ, to have God in Christ be all in all, and to live by faith on the Son of God, a life of humble, unfeigned confidence in Him. That's what it looks like to rest on Christ, not cook up religion. And so where are you? And if you find that you're like, man, I'm nowhere near that. I don't even know what that would be like. I can't even imagine it. Then let that be your brokenness which you bring to Christ and say, Jesus, I am full of doubts. I am full of shame. I am full of an inability to even move my heart at all towards you in love. Bring exactly that and lay it at the foot of the cross, and let Jesus Christ come and take off that robe and put on his own, and stand beside you, expelling Satan from your right hand, and standing beside you now as, an, as your advocate to say to God, Father, this one belongs to us. Amen.